Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Yeah man, I'm good. I am good. It's been a while since it's been on but here I am back again. Cool. How have things been treating you over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, fine. Fine. I, w- I wish I could say that something exciting had happened to me but um, nothing has. I can definitely confirm that adult life uh, as I move into early middle age mm. um, is nothing but a thrilling series of adventures that range from looking for socket screws in B&Q Ooh. to finding the most reasonably priced tinfoil in your local supermarket. Uh, both of those things I have done in the last two weeks. <laughs> and just to give any people, any of our listeners a leg up, where is the most reasonably priced tinfoil? Um, well, in, in Tesco's, it's the Tesco-owned brand that's not the value one because obviously mm. if you're buying value, Tim, that's a false economy because your, yeah. fing- your finger's going to go right through that. Um, yeah. So I find the 15-meter roll a fairly robust tinfoil and yeah, mm. more um, environmentally sound than cling film. So nice. there you have it. Don't say that we don't give you useful information on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll go on to the news for this week, and it seems like a fairly quiet week, or at least it was a quiet week, uh, certainly on my Twitter feed, until the argument between Marvel movie fans, not really Marvel Studios itself, and certain veteran filmmakers of the new Hollywood era was uh, stirred up yet again. Um, Obviously, a few weeks ago, Martin Scorsese talked kind of, I would say fairly diplomatically about how he, you know, Marvel movies aren't for him in an interview that was much more wide ranging and didn't really have anything to do with Marvel movies until he was asked about it because it was really more about The Irishman, uh, his forthcoming new movie. And then that kind of died down a little bit and, you know, you occasionally see mentions of it, but it, it was it was more or less over and done with. And then uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who himself has directed some good movies, uh, it's probably mm. fair to say. Mm-hmm. One um, or two. He mentioned in an interview where someone asked him about about superhero movies, and this is, I think, the problem is that people just need to stop asking people who clearly have no real interest in superhero movies to talk about them because mm. they're unlikely to offer up a answer that uh, will please anyone. Uh, he basically said that he also doesn't consider superhero movies, particularly the Marvel movies, as uh, being cinema. He says that, you know... Because in his mind, cinema is something that teaches you something and that you don't really gain anything by, in his words, seeing the same movie over and over again. And then he said that uh, he felt that what Scorsese had said about it was very mild. You know, he didn't call them despicable, which I would. And that's just kicked up the whole hornet's nest again. Mm. The hornet's nest of stupidity. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, firstly, the whole thing comes from a place of very lazy journalism. Mm. Because... We we can guess what Francis Ford Coppola thinks of Ant Man too. Like <laughs> we don't need to know. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah. sure if it, it's no surprise to me that a 70 year old man who hasn't who hasn't really done much film wise in the last 25 30 years is yeah. is you know inarguably a giant of the medium a um a master of the form has made several of 
what will probably still be in a hundred years' time regarded as the greatest movies of all time. Mm-hmm. But he he's kind of an irrelevance. And yeah. it, like he at this point, when you're seventy, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, asked twenty years ago what he thought of Jurassic Park, he probably would have said, Oh, you know, that's all right. It's not my cup of tea, but that's fine. But now he raises the point that the Marvel movies, not for him in, in certain, in no uncertain terms. But I mean, it's, 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 it's obvious and it's lazy to kind of just ask these guys what they think about films. And it's, it's purely being done to kind of like stir up some kind of uh, hysteria. And mm. for Marty, it was obvious he, he's got a film out. You know what yeah. I mean? It, I, I don't want to be that guy, but he's got a film out and suddenly he's making a controversial statement. That's, that is going to happen. But it it does kind of lend itself to like a, a wider trend of of older filmmakers not being particularly in step with new ideas. Steven Spielberg fairly famously railed against Netflix mm. um, and what they want to do, and Coppola and Scorsese. You know, obviously the, the the mainstream movies that are you know dictating the release schedules and how things are you know, they dominate the cultural landscape. Uh, they're not fans. And it's not really new, is it? This is like, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the old 30s, 40s and 50s golden era of Hollywood guys didn't like the high concept movies of the 80s. Mm. Um, they probably thought those were trash, you know. And I just feel like we're in this point where we're talking about it. Everyone's been talking about it, but it's... I don't really understand why anyone cares. It's someone's opinion. He's not taking those films away from you. It doesn't. You can be a like a genius and have it. You can make The Godfather two, and say something you don't agree with. Both of those things can be true. Um, you don't have to suddenly cancel someone because they thought Ant Man two was bad. Um, I think it's all right. Um, but it's yeah. I really kind of, it's such a needless, stupid thing. And whilst I do feel like people do connect with the Marvel movies, um, and they do, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, people, you know, got upset when Iron Man died, spoiler alert, because it, that they they found something to engage with the character that's and that's and they enjoy the movie. I mean, it's more disturbing that Martin Scorsese said these movies are like theme parks, which insinuates he doesn't like theme parks, mm. which is crazy. <laughs> but yeah, it, I, I I find it very tiresome. And yeah, Mister Coppola is perfectly happy to have his opinion, like fine to have his opinion. We all know that. Um, but I don't really know what effect it has on anyone else and why it should matter to anyone else. If he says he doesn't like these films, that's fine. Mm. Yeah, to me, it seems like the the kind of the end point of, you know, there's that thing whenever... This doesn't happen every time, but it happens a lot of times, I notice. Whenever someone, like, voices a criticism about something that is generally very popular, someone kind of, like, will chirp in with this panel from a comic... Um, where someone like holds someone's lips and says, let people enjoy things, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I think in its initial thing was just like saying, you know, when in its initial conception and its use, that comic is about saying like, you know, don't kind of sit there and rail bitterly about something you don't like because someone else will like it. And like, I think that's like a perfectly fine 
thing to do but uh, i think what it has morphed into and what a lot of people tend to use it from is like uh some way of being trying to stifle criticism to an mm-hmm. extent and to be just kind of like if you don't show overwhelming fealty to like the thing that is at that moment very very popular then you're doing something wrong and that you know some that people feel that if they could just argue with you to the point <laughs> the point eventually you'll come way to their around to their way of thinking and i think that's kind of what's playing out here the thing that's really funny about it to me is that it's you know people trying to make that point to martin scorsese and francis ford coppola two people who really do not care (laughs) about about any of this stuff like they're just like having interviews to talk about projects they're working on this completely unrelated subject comes up and they offer an opinion and then until those interviews get published and people start like talking about it online and even then like they're probably i mean Scorsese's on Instagram, so maybe he's getting arsy comments on there. So maybe he's seeing a bit of it. But like, I can't imagine that either of them thought very much about their comments on superhero movies, and uh, until like people say, "Hey, people are getting angry online about this," in which case it probably still doesn't affect their day all that much. Mm. It's just, it's just really strange to me that they they seem to be trying to. When I say they, um, like people who want to kind of take the side of Marvel and Disney or whatever over this thing over you know someone offering fairly mild criticism yeah them just just doing it towards two two genuine titans of cinema who are completely unaffected by any of this stuff Mm. in in scorsese's case because he's still a fairly viable commercial filmmaker who still is kind of working for major studios on all of these different things and coppola because he's in the completely opposite direction he is like someone who is fairly wealthy in his own right is able to kind of tinker away on movies that he wants to do like neither of them are affected by that at all they just feel as people who you know have dedicated their life to the art form that they need to offer their thoughts on you know where things are going as commercial filmmaking has moved away from them and you know i think they've both got fairly valid points to make and it's it's very funny again like them offering fairly mild criticism compared to what you see on twitter most days when people talk about how much they dislike superhero movies and it gets people into such a lather is Mm. like a really strange and weird phenomenon to bear witness to yeah and there there is that that hysterical thought that that whatever is being criticized is being taken away from you Mm. and that's just 100 percent not the case and you know someone can dislike something that you like but that's that does that shouldn't change how you feel about it yeah ever yeah and it's that idea of like online interaction being some sort of gladiatorial contest mm. where like whoever makes the best argument will will ultimately win whoever can like apply their logic most keenly to arguing why exactly you know there the move the a, a, a x movie is better than y or why you're wrong to dislike uh, Ant-Man 2 will end up the victor when, you know, art is just so totally subjective. And, like, the arguments that they would then use would be, like, you know, like the argument against Scorsese being, like, well, you've... Your movies have made, like, $900 million worldwide and the Marvel movies have made $12 billion. It's, like, it doesn't really 
negate his argument like that saying that the marvel movies are successful is just in it a statement of objective fact it doesn't say anything about their kind of like relative value or quality mm, yeah yeah this is all just it's all just something over nothing yeah it is it, it can be quite funny to see the lengths that people will prostrate themselves over it but i i was very much of the opinions like oh that thing that flared up for like two weeks has died down great we can all go on to i don't know anticipating the rise of skywalker or whatever and then instead it's just like completely flared up again it's like oh god just just let it lie Mm, yeah no one's gonna win this (laughs) there is there are no winners here just a lot of losers Mm, absolutely our next uh little story for this week was one that i found to be very interesting not just because it's and somewhat unexpected but also because uh it, it kind of came because of the context around it which was that it was announced that hbo max the forthcoming streaming service from warner brothers and warner media which is being branded with hbo because hbo means more culturally than just like the massive warner conglomerate have announced that they have attained obtained the rights to stream most of the Studio Ghibli uh, library. And what's notable about that is that, yeah, ever since streaming has been this kind of like viable cultural entity, Hayao Miyazaki, the founder of co-founder of Studio Ghibli, and it's it's kind of like leading one of its leading creative lights, has said that his movies will never ever be on streaming services. He doesn't like them in terms of the you know the the inconsistent quality i guess that you get for streaming and you know like that's why he always prefers physical media releases putting them out on blu-ray or putting them out in theaters you know in the u.s pretty much every summer fathom this big uh company that puts on uh either screenings of older movies through tcm or will show you know like opera and ballet from around the world to people they put on series of of Ghibli movies and they're always very very successful and that's kind of how a lot of people interact with those movies and the fact that they weren't available through streaming kind of added this level of magic to them slash made them one of the one of the most pirated film libraries mm-hmm. in the world <laughs> and so there was this this general sense that you know the ghibli stuff is never is not likely to ever be on streaming certainly not while miyazaki is alive and in control of the company's fortunes and then there was even an article in indiewire this week to that effect saying like this is why you will never ever see uh, studio Ghibli movies on streaming and then literally two days after that article was published <laughs> it was just like oh by the way we're going to be on HBO Max and I thought that that was very very uh, interesting that that turnaround happened so quickly mm, everyone's got a price Ed mm, yeah yeah. That, yeah I'm surprised that you know Ghibli's at the point now where they could I mean they I was gonna say they could do their own streaming thing but on their distribution in the US, especially managed by Disney or Buena Vista or someone like that, isn't it? It was for most of the last decade or so, but now it's handled by a company called G Kids. Right. Which handles a lot of anime releases over here. Um, they, Which is why, even though Disney put out a, a big Blu ray box set of all of Miyazaki movies a few years ago, uh, which I picked up fairly cheap in a sale and uh, love. It's one of, one of my most treasured uh, box sets because it's just a wonderful collection and this is really 
beautiful all the movies are kind of like really beautifully presented they have g kids have since been putting out the movies on blu-ray again in their collection with like different extras and things like that mm. so they are not currently overseen by disney which is why uh, obviously why hbo max were able to kind of like swoop in and finally rest uh, their work onto the into the streaming realm mm. yeah i mean are we at the point now where only really niche stuff that's fallen through the licensing cracks will not be available on streaming somewhere? Um, or do you think that... Because we've had this discussion before about older films not being available mm. as, as streaming. Do you think that there will be a point in the near future where everything that's ever been made is available? Or do you feel like there's there's still not quite the need for that? I think there is... There are lots of gaps. There are, particularly in terms of, you know, if you're looking at the way that different formats have evolved over time, there were movies that never made the leap from, you know, just being shown in the cinema to being released on VHS. There are lots of movies that never made the leap from VHS to DVD, and there are lots that never made the leap from DVD to Blu-ray. And so there are, in there, in just in that kind of progression, as, like, the number of movies that get released on formats narrowed and narrowed and narrowed that means that a lot of kind of fallen through the cracks just in terms of being preserved in a form that is even remotely presentable on a streaming service mm-hmm. like i recently watched Catherine bigelow's debut movie the loveless which is kind of like a biker movie with willem dafoe a very young willem dafoe mm-hmm. and the version i watched was on amazon and it was very very clearly a VHS that someone had uploaded to Amazon because the video visual quality was terrible and I'm pretty sure at some point it, the if I remember correctly like the image just completely cut out and it may even have been replaced by a different film. Wow. Um, so that's kind of the level at which that movie exists on streaming at this point and that's like a early work from a fairly major American filmmaker. So like there's lots of just like niche cult stuff that has never really made the leap from all these other formats. And I think we'll, unless someone somewhere happens to have it in their back catalogue and in their rights, it's probably unlikely to ever make its way onto a streaming service for a lot of stuff. Um, unless, you know, kind of like studios who have these big backlogs decide, hey, we're going to undergo this process of taking everything we have in our vaults, converting it digitally, and then putting it onto our own streaming services, which no one wants, but there's already too many of them. Mm. Um and I think that that is kind of like the major problem is that there are so many uh, questions of rights and things like that that it's going to be very hard for any streaming service or any, even any combination streaming service to provide people with access to every movie that has ever existed. Um, although it does, you know, leave open the possibility that the gaps will be filled by, you know, illicit means like piracy is kind of where I think a lot of people will and still do like that's pretty much the only way to see versions of certain movies that have never seen any major cultural release uh, commercial release um but you know that's obviously not ideal because not everyone is going to think to look to um piracy to you know see something and also the quality of something like something that's like a third generation rip of a vhs it's probably not going to be great and so a lot of really good cool interesting stuff is probably just going to get lost as 
people move more and more towards streaming. Mm. I remember a few, well, it was probably more than 10 years ago now when there was this announcement that studios were going to start doing kind of like print-on-demand DVDs. Mm, and yeah. I think, was it Warner maybe who did it? And they kind of committed to it for a little bit. That idea that you'd be like, oh, I actually want to see, I don't know, like Baby It's You or something. And mm. you just like bang a DVD out for me. But then they were like, oh, it's going to be like 20 quid a pop. And you had no guarantee they'd been done with any care. There'd be like no extras or anything on it at all. But like the amount of old films that studios have produced is finite, right? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. like at some point that has all got to be stored digitally because everything has relevance. Everything has some kind of worth and value. And as someone who has spent most of the year trying to watch old movies and mm-hmm. finding finding it very frustrating to get to the point where, oh, I've either got to buy the DVD of this or I'd, like renting it on Amazon is fine and it's available. But like, why isn't every old movie that's been out for like, some of these films are nearly 90 years old. Why isn't this a dollar? Mm, yeah. Why is this seven ninety nine to rent? Or why isn't it just on YouTube or whatever? Yeah. Because at a certain point you would assume, and that 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 is also another resource. There are tons of old movies on YouTube, mm. but again, the quality is not great. Like that's yeah. how I watched the old Black House, which is a great old horror with uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, like a real kind of fun oddball horror. And yeah, the version of it that was on YouTube at the time was not great, but it yeah. was still. You, you could still say, "Oh, that I watched that." Yeah. So there are there are resources out there, but there's just like there is definitely a sense that you know the the canon of great movies will probably always be preserved and will always be available in some really nice format, particularly as like Criterion, you know, and Twilight Time and Arrow and all these companies continue to churn out really high quality uh, Blu-rays and physical media releases in general of all these older movies but you know I think feel like the weirder movies and the, the kind of like the orphans of the first century of cinema are increasingly being forgotten which is a shame because I think in a lot of cases like those are the sort of movies that were probably you know something that a young Martin Scorsese or a young Quentin Tarantino caught one night just out of habit out of chance and that really sparked something in their mind and mm. you know at a certain point you'll be you'll like think you'll read an interview with like a filmmaker and be like oh that movie sounds really interesting and you just have no chance of ever watching it which is a, a real bummer <laughs> yeah and the, the idea like what i said was you know why aren't old films just a dollar to watch or whatever but it's because like it's because people are greedy and there's like mm-hmm. weird rights issues but like surely they'd make more money if they were just a dollar because people would pay 99 cents for something to watch if you're going to watch it once rather than you know those films have made their money already it's not yeah. costing much for them to be stored digitally somewhere for the digital dust to be blown off when some idiot wants to watch it it's yeah it seems very stupid to me i feel like like i thought after when the streaming wars began and the kind of physical media um the the idea that physical media wouldn't be the dominant um way that people watch things when that happened i thought surely we have to shake ourselves out of these archaic licensing and rights and territory issues because mm. surely with streaming this is the kind of thing that breaks that, those shackles and, and means that the, everything should be available everywhere at all times but it just seems to be so sluggish in happening yeah which is very frustrating 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, and uh, like I say, corporations are just very, very greedy, and it kind of doesn't seem like that will be ending anytime soon. <laughs> mm. They'll continue to think, what's the best way for us to kind of like gouge money out of our back catalogue that isn't, you know, what would seem from a preservation and business sense, the the smartest thing would be just make everything available, as you say, like fairly cheaply. And I think also like the death of the video store probably plays a part in this as well, because that obviously was a, a place where those kind of cheap videos and, you know, DVDs back in the day would turn up and it was like a reliable revenue source for a lot of studios and rights holders of fairly obscure movies and then yeah now that those are all but extinct yeah it kind of feels like that that whole thing has just really fallen by the wayside mm, yeah yeah totally our final story this week uh, is us returning to an old favourite, our mm. old stomping ground of Suicide Squad, which uh, is related to uh, Jared Leto, who of course played the Joker in Suicide Squad. Uh, truly terrible performance in a really very bad movie, but uh, he only got one chance of playing the Joker, and then for a while, I think everyone assumed as there was talk of making a spin-off Joker movie, that Leto would be would get the call to be in it because obviously he was the the then current Joker and he was shown to exist within the same universe as like the Ben Affleck Batman and all this sort of stuff. So you think, oh, you know, they're creating this consistent universe. Of course, they'll bring him up if they do a solo Joker movie. And obviously they didn't. They went with Joaquin Phoenix and the movie has been like a, a, a huge success as a result. But in its infancy, Jared Leto, apparently, according to a report this week published in The Hollywood Reporter, tried his darndest to stop the movie from happening and tried to lean on his agents to try and stop the solo Joker movie from being made, which is just very, very funny, mm. <laughs> I think. The the ultimate, I'm going to take my ball and going home, when mm. you weren't even invited to play in the first place. Um, yeah. I mean the whole fallout from Suicide Squad when, you know, we were treated to tales of Mr. Leto's um, behaviour on Mm. set and just how um, seriously he took the role of a man who dresses like a clown Mm -hmm. is, I mean, that's funny anyway. Uh, I mean, it's mortifying a lot of it because, you know, he was was very unprofessional in a lot of senses in uh, how he treated his co-workers uh, and colleagues. Which makes this bit even more funny. Like, you know, <laughs> that becomes the punchline later. The idea that he was... That it wasn't this, you know. Suicide Squad was never... Like, it's it's so it was so awful, and without any redeeming features, that they, they hired someone from a rival company <laughs> to remake the same film two years later. <laughs> it should tell you everything you need to know about Suicide Squad. So yeah. the level of schadenfreude that we enjoy of um you know him not being invited to any parties um <laughs> given that he was i'm sure setting his stall out to be the definitive version of the joker yeah. um and you know possibly could end up being a pub quiz answer you know yeah. years down the line is funny <laughs> yeah it's maybe the greatest joke the joker ever told mm. <laughs> Yeah, I very much am laughing at Jared Leto, which is, <laughs> is is you know that's fine. You can we can punch up, um, yes. and, that, and like, <laughs> this is this is where it is good to enjoy other people's misfortune. This won't get us fired from Saturday Night Live. 
No, no. <laughs> I mean, we've got tapes and tapes <laughs> that will get us fired from Saturday Night Live. Some of our, our edgier material. Enjoy our Christmas special cancelled, or trigger warning, <laughs> we'll call it, um, where we say the things that most people are afraid to say, but we'll say them because we're white guys. <laughs> yeah, we don't listen to all these millennials. Yeah. That we also are. <laughs> yeah, that we technically are. Yeah. <laughs> So we uh, go on to our main topic this week, and it is uh, minor works. And this was inspired by the fact that I uh, took myself down to the cinema the other day to watch the encore edit uh, release version of Francis Ford Coppola, the uh, the aforementioned Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. And uh, The Cotton Club, for people who don't know, was a movie that Coppola made in the early 80s and came out in 1984 and was much hyped because it was Coppola returning to the gangster genre, which obviously he had had some success with with the first two Godfather movies. He reteamed with Mario Puzo to write the screenplay. He also reteamed with Robert Evans, who produced those earlier movies. There was this real sense of like, oh, all these guys who made cinema history are coming back together for this big movie um and it also uh, revolved around the cotton club in harlem which was this nightclub that was kind of infamous for having a lot of black performers but for an exclusively white clientele and so it was about this this, this like not particularly well discussed part of, of american cultural history certainly not in a mainstream way and the movie came out and it was a massive failure. It was basically the thing that destroyed uh, Coppola's career for a little bit. You know, like he has obviously had um, a costly production in Apocalypse Now and an even costlier one in One from the Heart. But the Cotton Club was the was like the thing that basically meant that he took nothing but hack studio jobs for the next 20, like 15 years of his career. Mm. Um and one of the things that was like one of the main criticisms about it was that the, the the main story of the Cotton Club, which is about this gangster played by Richard Gere, who uh, oh, sorry no played this um he's a he's a a cornet player played by Richard Gere, who kind of falls in with these gangsters, these real life gangsters um, like Dutch Schultz and uh, uh, Lucky Luciano, like real figures of the American underworld at the time, and it's very boring you know it's all about him and like this love triangle he's in with dutch schultz played by james remar and remar's girlfriend played by diane lane and it's like there's some bits of it that's quite good like um bob hoskins is very very fun in it and there's a like a lovely relationship that goes on between him and uh, a character played by fred Gwynn. but for the most part it's just this complete damp squib of a movie and then every so often you know you would get this stuff about the people performing at the cotton club most notably the williams brothers played by gregory and maurice hines and there were these like smattering of really beautifully recreated musical numbers that recreated uh the, the sort of performances that people saw at the cotton club from people like cab calloway and duke ellington and that stuff, like, even at the time, everyone was like, oh, this is when the movie comes alive. We wish there was more of it. And uh, it turned out that there was a lot more of it, but a lot of it was cut out. Coppola was basically told that people in the 1980s would not go and see a movie that prominently featured, you know, a large, largely unknown black cast. And so he was forced to chop them 
down until it was pretty much just Richard Gere and occasionally Gregory Hines would show up. And so now for uh, this new version of the movie, the encore version, he's restored a lot of that stuff. The movie's a lot more balanced in terms of its focus shifting between Gere and Hines. There are a lot more musical numbers, which are all kind of really glorious. And the movie is still not 100% success because like, Every five minutes, he'll be like, oh, fuck, there's more Richard Gere stuff. <laughs> but for the most part, it's like a way better movie than it was. And it's like, it goes from being a very strong contender for maybe the worst film that Coppola made, uh, you know, down there with Jack, to like just another interesting curio in his career. Similar to the other stuff he did in the 80s, like uh, Peggy Sue Got Married or uh, The R- Rumblefish or The Outsiders, you know, these movies that, you know, didn't leave a huge impact at the time, but have since been reconsidered. So uh, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about other examples of of minor works, movies by major filmmakers that maybe at the time came out and didn't leave much of an impact, or just because, you know, their other work was so, like, huge that these movies that were perfectly fine or or even very, very good just got completely overshadowed and ignored, and, and in some cases, like in the case of The Cotton Club... Uh, or, or Rumblefish um, were rediscovered years later and also uh, this year just seems to have quite a few examples of minor works by major directors like oh, that came out in the last couple of weeks that I think are, are interesting to talk about mm. yeah I, th- I think probably the place to start is if you have a filmmaker who is successful commercially or artistically that has a long career then they invariably find themselves having a lot of minor works just because they're prolific. Yeah, um, certainly if you're looking at a lot of like classic Hollywood filmmakers where they were churning out like one or two films a year, mm. like like Howard Hawks has quite a lot of movies that are you watching that was fine. <laughs> it wasn't Red River, it was perfectly fine. Yeah. Or with the movie Bratz in particular when the bubble burst around the same time, and I'm not saying they're in any way connected, that one from the heart came out, mm-hmm. they find themselves having to, instead of being the kind of the darlings who could do anything with complete creative control and budgets that they, you know, are, uh, you know, kind of largely unchecked and, and able to do anything they want, they find themselves, yeah, having to either do studio pictures or work with much less money or uh, under circumstances that they perhaps wouldn't want to do you wouldn't think that from the years following raging bull that Mm. you know a couple of years later scorsese would be making something like after hours which is a much lower budget much more kind of like a raw and immediate film that you wouldn't expect to see from a filmmaker who made like a widely lauded masterpiece that was, you know, showered with praise and Oscars and kind of all sorts. But he found himself cap in hand making these kind of films for a low budget until, what was it like, you know, the like the whole decade kind of passed and Last Temptation of Christ made him persona non grata with a lot of people mm-hmm. and then finds himself doing, you know, Cape Fear remake for a major studio to that I'm sure probably helped in the background somewhere, get Goodfellas off the ground. Well, Goodfellas came first. Yeah, I, I wonder whether the agreement to ah, do something yeah, like yeah. Cape Fear was something that yeah. helped him get Goodfellas going. Yeah, or like, you know, also looking at the 80s, him doing The Colour of Money, 
mm-hmm. which is very much like you know there's it's a it's a perfectly fine well-made movie and you can see that like there's little scorsese flourishes in there and so you know in terms of his interest in like masculinity and things like that but you know it's a studio movie it's a much delayed follow-up to a movie from the 60s it's you know stars tom cruise who was then on a tear of deciding that he wanted to work with like every great director that he could and using his star power to to make that happen and that that definitely feels like somewhat a movie made by a filmmaker who maybe is a little bit adrift in terms of having gone like you say from this position of tremendous creative control to a position where they're like i guess i'll guess i'll make that if it if it helps get the last temptation of christ made Mm, yeah and it's it's weird you know obviously coppola he did he made apocalypse now which was costly for in every sense and then one from the heart which was which is weird that it's considered a minor film because I feel like at that point in his career, he probably thought that that was going to be his masterpiece. But, you know, I mean, and and this is the thing, like people consider it a minor work. So I dare say a lot of people haven't actually heard of it or seen it. Um, yeah. Like, you know, you, you, your film kind of nerds will, know, you know, at least know what it is. Um, but, you know, the people who probably know the name of Coppola from Godfather and Apocalypse Now probably won't have heard or seen one from the heart because it, it just kind of, slid off the landscape um mm. because it was such a such a it, it tanked and it, you know it kind of it killed the american zoetrope dream but yeah. the fact that that happened and then he had to largely commit himself on, on top of losing money from apocalypse now he had to basically work until i think the rainmaker which is 1997 or 8 mm-hmm. and i think when he was doing press for that I seem to remember, this is a long time ago, my memory's a little hazy, but I seem to remember him saying, right, I've, I've finally paid off Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So we can look at a lot of his work as minor from that period, and that includes stuff like Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is, for a major studio picture, quite mad in yeah. terms of like, I mean, it's not, it's by no means a great film, but it's got a lot of mad uh, artistry in there and mm-hmm. kind of like you know nods to a lot of the old kind of horror movies and stuff in a in a fairly elaborate kind of operatic way but yeah he he was he was churning out studio pictures to 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 pay off his debts and there are films in there that are very interesting and they are only really considered minor because he was really just working for the money mm. and it's not considered a personal film therefore not from an auteur's perspective therefore minor Mm, yeah, and also because his his seventies, even by the standards of like other people who've like made kind of gargantuan seismic uh, genre defining movies of the era, was just unbelievably strong. Mm. Like he made four of the best movies in the history of American movies in a row in the space. Yeah, in between like nineteen seventy two and. 1979 Mm -hmm. like that's crazy that's like you know the run the Beatles had from like 62 to 69 Mm -hmm. like it's absolutely crazy that he was able to do that so pretty much anything he would do in the years since then it's like you know Fleetwood Mac following up rumors with Tusk Mm. where like it's still got some good songs on it it's still sold a huge number of copies but like it it was it wasn't rumors 
So, like, it, that there is certainly a sense of perspective there that also kind of has to factor into it. I think also in terms of someone who was uh, a f- movie brat filmmaker who had a somewhat more successful seven, uh, 80s that I think it's fair to say, Steven Spielberg, he... You know, obviously, he had huge successes with the all three of the, the the first three Indiana Jones movies. All came out in that decade and were massive hits. And E.T. obviously was for a time the highest grossing movie of all time. But he also put out like Empire of the Sun, which is, a, yeah, I think a very very good movie with a great central performance by Christian Bale and some kind of like fun scenery chewing from John Malkovich. You know, like there's any other kind of John Malkovich movie, but because it was this like adaptation of a somewhat lesser known book by J.G. Ballard, who wasn't even like, you know, wasn't necessarily a household name uh, outside of, you know, households that really enjoyed their weird, upsetting dystopian science fiction. It, you know, it didn't do a huge amount of the box office and, and wasn't, you know, a force at the Oscars in the way that a lot of his movies of the period were. So it's, it's very much kind of a minor work just because he is such a, a titan of American cinema. And at the time, you know, if you're looking at the movies he made in the 80s, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark followed immediately by E.T., followed by, you know, Twilight Zone, the movie. The less said about that, the better, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, like the second Indiana Jones and uh, Colour Purple, which I'm not a massive fan of. I think that it kind of feels a little bit, a, a little, little, little bit bloodless, I guess. But, you know, like, was certainly, like, a decent-sized hit and, you know, was a huge Oscar juggernaut, you know, to have this one little movie that didn't really get that much attention really does kind of feel, uh, make it feel minor, regardless of even how good it is. Mm. I guess another way that we can define minor works by great directors, I guess, is when they maybe try a little something different. And mm. it's falls between the cracks. Something like you know, if you think about Martin Scorsese doing something like Kundun, yeah, um, which is obviously shorthand for a lot of people for you know someone perhaps drifting out of their lane a little. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's also you know, from all accounts, I haven't seen it, a perfectly fine film that you know does have a Scorsese stamp on it. But just because it was perhaps not a wise guy movie, having I mean, that followed Casino, did it? Would have done? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it being that people kind of quickly gloss over it when they think about, you know, someone's output. Yeah, or like the movie that came immediately after that, which was Bringing Out the Dead, which is a phenomenal movie and like a real great reuniting of him and uh, Paul Schrader. It very much feels in keeping with a lot of their collaborations with each other. But that was one that in recent years has has really kind of been reassessed and reevaluated and i think is now considered to be like one of his more interesting movies but i think at the time was seen as like oh what's he doing making a movie with nicolas cage and this is like warmed over taxi driver but now it's an ambulance driver mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff so like i think that that as well kind of can play a part of it like expectations from a director like you hear oh he's making another like movie about some sort of weird loner who exists on the fringes and it's like all like New York at nighttime, you know, it's inevitable. It's going to be impossible not to have it compared to Taxi Driver, regardless of how good the movie is otherwise. Hmm. Well, is there like, has 
uh, we're kind of we're, we're main, mainly speaking about the movie brats now, but have, have mm. any of the others kind of, you know, taken a bit of a gamble on, and that film has 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 kind of been not really particularly thought of as as being part of the oeuvre when when people talk about their filmographies. I can't think of Spielberg taking many big risks, really. Mm. I think I think it's it's interesting because like when you think of like the other big ones like. Lucas basically didn't make a movie. I guess Howard the Duck. <laughs> he produced, he produced that. Yeah. Um but he didn't he wasn't like you know writing or directing movies between the the return of the Jedi coming out and Phantom Menace, but he did like put his clout behind like Kagamusha the uh Kurosawa movie which he produced alongside Francis Ford Coppola where they they both were like, "Hey, this guy's like maybe the greatest filmmaker who ever lived and he can't get a movie made, maybe we should help. Um, so that was like a big risk in terms of him putting his own money behind something. And it paid off because I'm pretty sure that Kurosawa got a uh, got an Oscar nomination for it and the movie was like fairly successful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like he was just so set from the success of the Star Wars movies that he didn't really need to do anything. He just kind of like produced stuff and kind of, you know, kind of like... I think tried to foster other filmmakers and you know move focused on his TV, um, their other and but you know this is kind of talking about like Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, like epilogue now, but like you know someone like a Hal Ashby, like the eighties were very cruel to, like basically uh, struggled to make any movies. The movies he made were things like Eight Million Ways to Die, which made no impact. And then he he you know like a Rolling Stones music documentary, and then he passed away. And like those are definitely minor works, and they're not very good movies. But also because he, like Coppola, had been on such an amazing tear of movies for the better part of a decade that once the studio culture completely changed and his mode of filmmaking was completely no longer in vogue, then he was just completely shut out, and you know, kind of had had this like real tragic end to his life. Oh, um. Altman, I think, has a really interesting 80s in that period. Obviously, you start with Popeye, mm-hmm. which is uh, a film I have a great deal of affection for, mainly because of my Maltese heritage. But, you know, it's it's a movie that I watched a lot as a kid, and I remember going to the set, which is a tourist attraction in Malta, if anyone goes there. Uh, you can walk around the, the town from Popeye. And then he also struggled so much to get movies made that he... But he, unlike... The, you know, like Scorsese, who occasionally did a studio job, and Coppola, who just constantly did studio jobs, he mainly focused on just doing small, 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 more interesting stuff like uh, Secret Horror, I think, which grew out of workshop he was doing when he was lecturing. Uh, like he was lecturing at a, and teaching film for a few years, and he just basically made that with a crew of his students and was like, hey, this would be interesting to, you know, take this, I think. Uh, you know, do this kind of like one man play with uh, Philip Baker Hall and just kind of like do it a super low budget and just kind of crank mm. it out. And that is, you know, he was in a position where similar to Coppola now, I suppose, where like he's so, he was so interested in making movies for a particularly big budget or, you know, a studio interference that he was just kind of like doing really small, interesting stuff for that whole decade, really. Mm, yeah. Can we think of any more modern directors that might have big enough kind of back catalogue to have minor works considered? 
like like uh, like I said, I feel there's been a few this year, and in fact, in the last two weeks, I went to see Gemini Man, the latest Ang Lee movie, and obviously the movie's just out, and it's hard necessarily to weigh it against everything else he's done, and to really kind of like say out and out, oh, this is a minor work, but this is a minor work. Yeah. <laughs> I think in terms of his filmography, it's um, it's interesting in the sense that he's obviously like this like major filmmaker who's made a bunch of hugely successful movies over the course of his his you know nearly three decades in the business at this point and some of them are you know amongst the best movies certainly i've ever seen but he has gotten into this the whole thing where he wants to make everything 123 inches per second he's you know trying to do these experiments really in the very way in which we experience movies and this is interesting in that, you know, unlike Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which I think was a fairly medium budget movie and was very kind of like small and intimate. Uh, this is like a big action spectacular with Will Smith playing himself and a cloned version of himself. And it's really like the script for it is just like really po-faced in a way that doesn't help the material because the material is so over the top and silly in some respects like it's very it reminded me a lot of the metal gear solid series of video games which are you know kind of like all about like cloning and secret government stuff and the notion of the perfect soldier and what it means to you know kind of be a warrior and things like that there's all these things kind of milling around it but in metal gear solid there's this kind of like winking sense of humor to it and there's none of that in gemini man and that i think kind of kind of hurts it because there are plenty of moments when you could kind of have a fun moment that kind of gives it a sense of personality but everyone in it kind of feels apart from uh like benedict wong as the kind of like sidekick like there aren't that many characters in it that have a great sense of personality which is a real shame but there it kind of feels like a minor work not only just because it's in terms of his career it's gonna probably lose a shitload of money and that's not great if you're someone who whose career in Hollywood has largely been built on the fact that you're able to make pretty engaging, fairly successful movies, but also because you watch it and you think, this is someone trying to find a new way of telling stories and doing it with a huge budget and like really trying to push for something. And it just, outside of a few things, like I think the movie has really interesting stuff in there about abuse in a really interesting way like the relationship between the clone will smith and clive owen who plays his kind of handler slash father figure who really leans into this idea of like an abuser who really does present themselves as loving and caring in a way that feels like real in a way that a lot of the movie doesn't yeah like outside of moments like that you're watching you kind of think this this isn't really gelling together and that that's kind of like the main reason why I watch it and like immediate thinking, oh, this was, this is a perfect thing to talk about on the podcast if we're doing minor works. Mm, and But the thing is, is that falls into the thing of like, is it considered minor because it's bad? And is that mm. why people don't talk about it? It's like a, a, a case of someone trying something very different, not necessarily in terms of what they're known for, because obviously... Uh, Ang Lee has kind of occasionally directed action movies before. Obviously, his I think still maybe his highest. Oh no, 
Life of Pi was probably higher grossing, but like for a long time, one of his highest grossing movies, Crash Tiger Hidden Dragon, which was obviously like a big martial arts epic. He had like, even though the movie was not looked upon kindly, he had a lot of commercial success with his version of Hulk. You know, like it's not out of the question for him to kind of take on a big action movie and to try and imbue it in some way with some interesting psychological comment and to try and like handle bigger themes. But in this instance, like it feels minor because, you know, it's trying something that's very, very new for for cinema in general in in some senses and for him and as such, maybe it kind of gets a curious look from a lot of people who are kind of like, oh, he's trying something very weird here with the high frame rate stuff and the 3D, but it doesn't connect with people. And I think that's one of the things that can that can set a make a work feel minor is if it doesn't connect with people, and particularly the people who are maybe like long term fans slash apologists for that filmmaker, as I would consider myself for Frank Lee. Mm, yeah so we're saying that minor works are something that only completists would like yeah or like in some cases it it can be a case where like a minor work eventually finds its audience like i mentioned it earlier uh rumblefish is like a movie that Francis Ford Coppola made in the in the early 80s he made it pretty much back to back with the outsiders they're both se hinton adaptations and with I think largely the same cast and it was like a very strange movie it has this kind of timeless quality where it's both happening in the 50s and the 80s simultaneously and people didn't really know what to make of it especially compared to The Outsiders which I think was more immediately grabbed and understood by audiences and is probably still being shown in um board to board English classes uh, even now mm-hmm. um but and when I first watched it, I watched it because, like, I went through a period where I watched, like, as many Francis Ford Coppola movies as I could get my hands off. Funnily enough, a uh, task which ended pretty much as soon as I watched The Cotton Club for the first time. I was just kind of like, I don't need to watch everything this guy made. But um, I watched it because someone had said, oh, that's, like, my favourite Coppola movie. And I'd never heard anyone say that about it. And it was a movie that I think had l- l- largely fallen into obscurity. And I watched it and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm so, this is like so on my wavelength. And now, 10, 15 years later, that movie has like a Criterion edition. And that's definitely one where it kind of fell by the wayside for a really long time. And then either because the people who really liked it when it came out, you know, grew up to become filmmakers and critics themselves and were able to champion it. Or, you know, just the fact that Coppola came back and was doing, you know, movies again, like Youth Without Use and Tetro, which got people to reconsider his work. That led to that movie being kind of reassessed in some ways. So I think it is entirely possible for a movie to kind of like start as a minor work and for it to be a minor work for most of its lifetime and then to have its fortune turn around kind of through through happenstance more than anything else. Mm. So we talked a bit before we did this about Steven Soderbergh, who definitely falls into mm, the category yeah. of having minor work purely because he's done so many films. Mm. And yeah, we both watched a film this week that is, you know, one of his post-unretirement movies <laughs> um, that he's yeah. made, a film called The Laundromat, um, which very much would fall into the minor work category because it's A, not particularly great, and B, quite strange. Yeah, and very much um, 
you know, it's his second his second movie of the year, his second Netflix movie of the year. And it's like a case of him trying to tackle similar to like what he did in the past with things like traffic or the informant, where he tries to tackle something complicated and systemic in a way that feels accessible. But he kind of takes the ironic qualities of uh, and the comedic qualities of the informant and maybe runs with them in a direction that's not terribly fruitful and also appears to have been somewhat influenced by and you know kind of uh, badly it should be said by you know the whole big short fast food nation approach to these kind of stories mm-hmm. where you think oh this story is too complicated to tell through some sort of a straightforward narrative what we need to do is uh have lots of fourth wall breaking have moments of like animation for this thing where it kind of is a drama with characters but also sort of a documentary explaining a complicated thing to you even as the characters themselves are learning about it and possibly could have explained it to the audience through you know conversation and drama and yeah it's um it's about the panama papers and this whole kind of series of um shell companies that various incredibly famous and successful rich people have set up to protect their money and initially kind of seems like it's going to be told through the story of Meryl Streep as this woman whose husband dies in a freak accident that then you know she tries to get some sort of accountability through the company that owns the cruise that they were going on and then it turns out that company doesn't really exist and it's like this really weird thing where you think oh there's going to be there's a clear emotional through line for here of and and a real easy to grasp point of view character audience surrogate in this person who's suffered this terrible tragedy and is learning this stuff as we are and then it just goes completely off the fucking rails mm. Yeah, it goes off at the deep end, doesn't it? And yeah, very quickly. I mean, it starts with a weird framing device of of uh, Antonio Banderas and Gary Oldman's mm. characters, you know, kind of narrating the way through the human history of commerce. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah, kind of crazy. And Gary Oldman is making some choices as an actor. <laughs> he's, he's playing uh, a very... I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe, really. He's. I think he might be kind of uh, Northern European, kind of German, maybe could be Austrian, but it sounds like he just is trying it for the first time on the take that they used, <laughs> and no one tried to in any way mold what he was doing because he kind of sounds like a more excitable Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's 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 not. Not great. No. And then the film takes a real turn when it appears that Meryl Streep is acting in brown face. Mm, yeah. With fake fake tits and fake ass. Yeah. Um, which reminds me a lot of the uh, slightly uncomfortable Latina character played by uh, Deandra Reynolds in the uh, the popular TV show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. And to uh, I likened to the various characters from Bo Selector. In, in certainly in terms of like the the makeup you know they don't they don't just like put make her face brown which i guess is good <laughs> a step in the right direction that is not immediately apparent that it's meryl streep and uh all this stuff but the way they do do it is they just kind of like make her face very bulbous 
in mm. a, a way that isn't terribly convincing. And like, I guess particularly like at the end of the movie, there's a sequence where like she walks towards the camera and she takes off the makeup and then she's Mel Streep again and she's talking about the need to get money out of politics. <laughs> uh, and it's like this real weird note to end the movie on. Um, this but like, I'm still not sure why they did it. Yeah, I'm, sure, exactly. I'm still not sure why she's playing this character. Yeah, it's, it's it's like you wonder if there's like some like Brechtian distancing effect to it where they kind of like want you to think, oh, this isn't a real character because it's like a composite or whatever. But yeah, you, you just spend the whole time leading up to the moment when she like starts taking the makeup off and you're like, you just think, why would anyone think this was a good choice? Why mm. in this day and age would you kind of think, oh yes, what we really need to do here for this minor character in this movie is to have the most famous person in the cast dress up in, yeah, in brown face and affect a sort of Latino accent. Mm. It's, um, but but no one else does it in the film. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it makes no sense thematically or, you know, in the narrative or artistically. Yeah, it's just like it, one of those things where you wonder if they were just sitting around one day and thought, you know, it would be a lark. Mm. You know, it would be funny. Hey, maybe the actress called in sick um, mm. on that day and they were like, oh, it's Maribel on an off day. <laughs> or uh, it's like there will be blood when, you know, the reason that Paul Dano plays two characters is because they fired the original guy who played <laughs> Eli. And mm. like, uh, <laughs> they, they were just like, Oh, this central character we had to fire the fire the actress, and we just thought, well, we've got Meryl here. She's mm. obviously game for anything. They saw her in Mary Poppins Returns and thought, well, you know, like she'll do anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, just... she's she's famously versatile, and that's a joke from The Simpsons. <laughs> well done. Yeah, maybe bringing your total of Simpsons references on <laughs> the course of this show to like five or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might even just be two. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 a super weird film. And I think that definitely kind of attrib- contributes to the sense of it being mine. And obviously like, you know, it's, it's only just come out and it doesn't help that it's on Netflix, which I think tends to flatten everything else. So like even their best movies don't necessarily feel like events unless you happen to go and watch it in a cinema. Um, mm. But yeah, like it just it does feel like really weird and scattershot, and kind of contributes to that sense, you know, of Soderbergh as someone who now makes so many movies and is like churning them out post retirement, and you know, putting together the final edit of High Flying Bird as he's like on the first day of the laundromat or whatever. That you kind of wonder if maybe the films aren't necessarily that well considered. Mm-hmm. And, and even when they're good, like I loved Logan Lucky. I thought that was an absolutely wonderful movie. And it's like such a real nice, warm, comfy movie to kind of sit back and rewatch. And it's got this lovely hangout quality to it. And Unsane is like a real fun, weird, low budget experiment that, you know, that, that I, I found really enjoyable. Uh, if hard to watch mainly because of the iPhone stuff that's, you just kind of wonder, like, maybe, you know, one film a year, Stephen, might work out a little bit better, even though his model, the way that he makes movies, seems to work out really well for him. Like, he's talked about how he really likes making films that way and being able to kind of, like, knock them out so quickly. And it removes, I think, a lot of the problems that he was having when he initially called it quits of 
you know, feeling like the grind of having to sit there and hustle and convince studios to fund all this stuff he wanted to do. Like now that he has, you know, this deal with Netflix where he seems to just kind of go to them and say, hey, I shot this in a weekend. Do you want to put it out? And they said, yeah, sure, fine. Or whatever uh, seems to like fit him. Like you do wonder if maybe he's one of those people who really benefited from the friction of having to work hard to get a movie made. That maybe Mm. if you remove all of that, he just kind of maybe relies on the fact that he is you know, still very, very talented and maybe doesn't feel like he needs to push himself that much. That's just you mm. know, speculation on my part. Yeah, he's got a lot of minor works and since he's got a lot of films that aren't very good, a lot of films that no one went to see mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of films that have been um, reconsidered over the period of time and um, a lot of films that were really weird artistic experiments. Yeah. Like so he, he really does fit the bill. And the thing that's great about him, I think certainly if anyone ever like sits there and goes through his work chronologically, it's like, it's funny just how quickly that happened. Cause like mm-hmm. out the gate with sex lives and videotapes, you like this movie that redefined independent film in America and won the palm door and got him an Oscar nomination and all this sort of stuff. And the next film Kafka, like mm-hmm. a weird sort of adaptation of Kafka's work. That is also a biography that also at the end turns into a bond movie. What King of the Hill, like lovely, warm, totally sweet and accessible period piece movie. And then like what? The Underneath, like neo-noir that didn't quite work. Schizopolis, like he's like such a, a wonderful filmmaker in some ways because he he didn't like bang out a few like movies in the vein of Sex, Lies and Videotape to establish a brand and then start you know, kind of trying weirder stuff. He was like, okay, I've arrived. I'm just going to go off the wall, (laughs) see what happens. Mm. And then if you think about, okay, we're at the point where he's made all those films and he's at Schizopolis. He's, he's not been able to scratch any money together to make films, take one studio gig and then wind it forward. Five years later, he's won two Oscars in the same year and he's directed his second Ocean's Eleven sequel. Yeah, and it was also like a massive converse commercial hit. Mm, yeah, crazy. Especially like as well, like Erin Brockovich and Traffic, I think were both massive hits as well. I think Traffic, they were. Traffic like made a hundred million dollars, which is wild to think considering the kind of movie it is. Mm, yeah. Uh, Do you have any other kind of filmmakers to talk about? I'm just trying to think about who might be considered as. Like prolific mind work, someone like Michael Winterbottom, maybe. Oh God, yeah, he's got to have a ton. Yeah, um, but then it feels like everything he does is a minor work because nothing's a success. <laughs> yeah, or like some some films that they're just they 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 kind of stand slightly taller than the others. Something like Twenty Four Hour Party People or The Trip mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, um, might stand out, but like I mean, if you think about his his big budget Hollywood movies like The Claim or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no one saw that. Yeah. Great movie though. But Yeah, like, it's a very good movie, yeah. But yeah, that that was definitely like one that I picked up on the off chance from the nat long long gone blockbuster on Abbeydale Road. Um mm-hmm. no no I get no no Abbeydale Road. Um yeah. But, but some yeah, street. It was on Abbeydale Road. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um yeah, like I just picked that up because I thought, oh, you know, like Peter Mullen, I like him. Michael Wimbledon movie, I've never heard of this, and then watching it, thinking, this is like a real good. This is a real good, strong, interesting movie. But you're right, like, so he he is so prolific, and he dashes his movies off L- less so now. But like, there was certainly a period where he was doing 
so many movies in such rapid succession that very few of them really seem to stick to the ribs that much. Mm. And they're like the only one really like are, you know, his collaborations with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, but even like a cock and bull story, which is really kind of like the genesis of the trip because that's where their whole shtick kind of came together is one that doesn't really seem outside of, you know, film circles, this doesn't really seem to have made much of an impact. And then if you look at some of the other stuff he did, like Genoa, that one that he did with Colin Firth, which I remember like 12 people going to see at the showroom when we showed it, or oh, that one he did about the pornographer. Um, oh, um, the one about, oh God, what was his name? The guy from like, he was like big in the 80s. Had Stephen, Steve Coogan in again, didn't it? Yes. It had love in the title, something love. Yeah. The and look of love. Look of Love, yeah. That's right. And he did stuff like, is it Road to Guantanamo? Is that his? So these yes. kind of like little, you know, digital projects that he would he would um, knock out very quickly, work very fast, very cheaply. And someone who has this huge body of work, all of which is interesting. And, you know, just maybe some of it's considered minor because it's slightly harder to get a hold of than the other stuff. Mm, yeah, I think also, like, his big idol, I think, or certainly someone I remember seeing him, him cite as a big idol of his filmmaking is Werner Herzog who obviously mm-hmm. mentioned earlier and he's also someone who particularly like if you look at his work in like through the 60s 70s and 80s just like constantly turned out movies and he feels like someone who produced like who has produced a lot of minor works but is very much a case of like oh like this movie is like still fairly good but like it's not Fitzgeraldo or it's not Aguirre or any of the Wrath of God he just has mm-hmm. like these these titanic works that you can compare all of his other stuff to. And then you think, well, you know, like, lo and behold, it's like interesting kind of meditation on the internet, but it's not Grizzly Man. Whereas mm. you can't really say that about Mike Winterbottom, like who has, you know, I love 24 Hour Party People. I think it's an absolute wonderful movie and one of my favorite British movies ever. But like, that's that's kind of it in terms of like the movies that you would like hold up and say yeah this is like an unimpeachably like really great work and everything mm-hmm. else is kind of like and, and you know like the trip movies are super good and fun and really enjoyable but like that's the only one where you think yeah if you were to try and make an argument for one of his movies being entered into the canon it'd probably be just 24 hour pie people and everything else is like minor works <laughs> that occasionally are slightly more interesting than that. Mm, yeah, totally. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I'm going to recommend some pop music um, to you folks at home this week. I'm going to recommend an album um, by a wonderful band called Duran Jones and the Indications, um, an American band who um, are kind of like sound incredibly retro, um, but uh, very much, um, you know, from now. Um, and I got their album. It came out this year. It's their sophomore album called uh, American Love Call um, earlier this year. It is quite marvelous. I recommend listening to it. Um, it kind of has all those hallmarks of, of you know, classic Stax records, um, but also feels very modern. It's, there's a very much um, a kind of comment on the state that America finds itself in right now, especially on the opening track, which I think is called Morning in America. And it's a mixture of, they have two vocalists. They have Duran Jones, um, the aforementioned, 
frontman uh, who has and uh, does an incredibly powerful old school soul vocal, and then their drummer, um, a young man called Aaron Fraser, has this amazing falsetto so a drumming a falsetto drummer much like frankie valet and yeah kind of gives the all the songs are kind of like a like a two-handed feel um some feature both some feature one or the other um and you know it's really nice to switch between those two you know the the sounds interesting um and i saw them in uh, a pop concert on friday at uh, in manchester and they were absolutely incredible live uh, as a live proposition and yes i would heartily recommend this album so listen to it please um because i can't see too many other people talking about it unless i'm just not at all in touch with the musical zeitgeist anymore cool i am going to recommend a movie that i watched the other day a movie that came out last year and uh, you know could be considered a minor work in this Trek's filmography, although he is still fairly quite young, so we'll see how it goes. But it is David Lowry's The Old Man and the Gun, mm. which is a movie starring uh, Robert Redford and Stacey Spacek. Robert Redford plays kind of this old bank robber who is still kind of active in Texas in the kind of early 80s. He has kind of basically been a lifelong criminal, kind of finds a great deal of romance and just like joy out of it out of going into banks and kind of robbing them with his crew which includes uh, other aged actors such as uh, Danny Glover who's a very good in a very small role and Tom Waits who's uh, a lot of fun and at one point says the line uh, my bones hurt which you really believe said in his kind of raspy gravel and uh, it's just a very very fun and very charming uh, movie Redford is great it was uh, billed as his final performance though technically I think his appearance in Avengers Endgame (laughs) means that it's now his penultimate performance Mm -hmm. but it's like a real if it ends up being the last the second to last thing he does or the last like proper kind of star vehicle he has it's uh, kind of a nice sweet mode to go out on it's very much tied into his persona there are bits where to kind of like you know flashbacks they use clips of him from older movies which is quite nice quite sweet little touch his relationship with city space city space egg in it is uh, incredibly sweet and touching and the movie has a nice vim to it it's not this kind of like you know there are so many movies that get made every year where they'll like grab a bunch of older stars and put them in like like that movie Poms that came out this year which was about like Diane Keaton and a bunch of other kind of actresses of her generation are like former cheerleaders who decide to take it up again where there are these kind of like movies where you think oh these they've, they've kind of got these older actors in just because they can appeal to like the only people who go and see smaller mid-budget movies anymore and they just kind of feel really kind of anodyne and real don't have a lot of spark to them I think this one like is very steeped in you know the idea of Robert Redford as this very particular kind of movie star that you know doesn't necessarily exist anymore and there is like there's a wonderful kind of like subtextual quality to it that makes it a real rich experience particularly if you're someone who grew up Robert during like as I did like the last years where Robert Redford could be the headliner of a major movie to see him in this thing where he is you know, an older guy slower guy but who still finds joy in going out and doing the things that the thing that he loves, and you know there is something very very sweet in that. So, uh, it's currently available on Hulu here in the US, I believe, uh, or possibly 
because it was on HBO or whatever, but you know, it's fairly widely available and it is just a, like a really small, lovely, charming movie. Unfortunately, it does feature Casey Affleck, but I just pretended he was Scoop McNary for the entire running time and uh, that'll, that'll get you through. Mm, I It's just, uh, it was yesterday's premiere on um, Sky Cinema, which means it's now on Now TV if uh, uh. you are... Um, in Britain and have that service then that's how you find it because I added it to my list today. Nice. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places Raters, reviewers and recommend to your friends the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs>